Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon 2. And I hope that you enjoyed last week's edition of Salon 2, where Aliette Waldman spoke about her experience with microdosing LSD. I know that it certainly came in handy for me. <laughs> you see, uh, the day after I posted that interview, an old friend of mine called me. Now, he and I worked together over 30 years ago, but we'd only spoken on the telephone once since then. So you can imagine how surprised I was when, after hearing his voice for the first time in so many years, he told me that the reason for his call was to find out if I knew anything about microdosing. <laughs> now, how's that for an interesting little coincidence? Now, this week we are going to be treated to several psychedelic stories from some of our Canadian friends. At least I think that they're Canadians, since these stories were recorded in Montreal on Mushroom Day in 2015. Now, I haven't heard these stories yet myself, but I'm really looking forward to listening to them with you. Lex Pelger will be introducing today's podcast, and he'll also tell you a little bit about Symposia's Blue Dot Tour, which I hope that you'll take the time to attend if it comes to a town near you. In fact, I plan on being at the San Diego event on April 27th myself, and maybe I'll see you there. Now, here's Lex. Hello, everybody. I'm Lex Pelger, host of Symposia, and welcome to the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. This week's episode is something we hope to feature more and more of here, a selection of stories from one of our open mic storytelling nights. It's also good timing because this is a week we are beginning the first leg of our Blue Dot Storytelling Tour across the continent. We will be in Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Athens, Austin, Boulder, Oakland, San Diego, and Los Angeles. And that's just to get started. Since we want to make this tour accessible to everyone, most of the shows are free or pay what you will. So if you're near any of those cities, come on out and meet the others. For more info, go to Symposia.com. First, we hear from Adi Kabus, a nomadic artist born in Tel Aviv, who tells a particularly visual story about his first time with mushrooms. Uh, okay, I, uh, I did copious amounts of mushrooms uh, when I was younger, and uh, I don't remember much, but uh, I think I would like to tell you about my first time. Uh, I just moved to California, about half an hour away from Tijuana. I was living on a beach in a youth hostel that looked pretty bad. It was very cheap to live there, so uh, it was just in, fine for me. Some of the friends, which I call them friends, but I actually don't really know them. I just met them like a week ago, said, Adida, come have some mushrooms with us. And because I wanted to be cool, I said, sure, I do lots of mushrooms all the time. Come on, bring it. <laughs> Not a good idea. Uh, so uh, we tried, uh, I think there were Hawaiian mushrooms. I ate them like uh, candy. Tried to hide the face when, uh, when you eat the mushrooms. Like, yeah, I love it. Good taste. It's fresh. I had no idea what I'm doing. We were about six people, half of them were German, 
uh, I think a Dutchman and an Australian, everybody's talking. The hostel is right there on the beach. We go, sit down on the beach, everybody starts slowly tripping out, and nothing's happening to me. Uh, half an hour passed by, the Germans go uh, check some fire, disappeared. I think the Australians start playing with, uh, with a, a dog that went by. The others uh, decided to go eat something. Still, I'm not feeling anything. I think an hour went by. I'm alone there on the sand. The sunset starts to come. I feel like uh, something's wrong with me because uh, I should be tripping, but I don't feel anything. So I'm bummed, sitting there. Can't find no one. It's getting dark. Sadness uh, falls upon me. And uh, slowly I look at my feet, which are deep, stuck into the sand. And uh, for some reason, I notice there's snakes all around me <laughs> under the sand, moving slowly. I'm okay. I don't think California Beach have snakes, definitely not 2,000 of them circling me in a very mathematical pattern. So I decided to stand up and uh, enjoy the show and at the same time freak the fuck out. I decided to go to a higher area. So there's a pile of rocks uh, behind me. So I go up. It's about a meter or two. Uh, but I, I was able to see the beach in a, in a better way. When I went on top of the pile of rocks, which took me forever to climb, even though later I found out it was about this high, <laughs> and I'm not short, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I look at the beach, I see the horizon, and the entire beach is moving with gazillion snakes. Uh, obviously, my brain is telling me this could not be uh, possible. The, 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 the San Diego Zoo did not unleash 20,000 snakes on the beach at this moment. <laughs> so uh, I, took a, I took the time to see like, uh, if, if, uh, if, if something here is uh, beyond me, beyond my reasoning. I noticed that uh, the waves work extremely uh, together with the waves. So as the water wave crashed, the ripple effect continued on the sand, uh, hit, the, hit the, the wall of the boardwalk and came back, as if it was underwater experience in sand. Uh, this was fantastic. It was super beautiful. I start to understand that everything is connected together, uh, the sand is part of the ocean, it's all part of the land, there's our waves, electromagnetics, things I don't even know nothing about made sense at that moment. I immediately wanted to find my friends to tell them, but no one was around. So I decided I have to f go back to the hostel and uh, find people to see this adventure that I've just discovered. Um, the second that I climb over the wall of the boardwalk, my feet touched uh, cement, and everything went dark. Cement does not move. It is pretty cold. I became sad again, and even terrified, because uh, 
It was not as fun as walking on sand. I felt I was a part of earth. If you haven't done mushrooms, you have this longing for nature. That does not happen when you go into a city. So I decided, like, uh, I, don't, I don't like this. Uh, this is not moving. It's not fun. There's no snakes here. Uh, I'll walk to the hostel, and uh, I hope I'll find the people I just met and hope that the adventure continues. I got lost. Uh, I went into a street which I thought was the street of the hostel, and I was going completely the wrong way. And I started uh, noticing a mathematical equation in the city. The streets were parallel. Cars were parallel. Buildings right next to each other in a very man-made form. And that really pissed me off. I remember that, like, this is not fun. This is not organic, like there, the ocean, where things moved. This, who, why would we make something like this? <laughs> Nobody answered me, because this was in my head. <laughs> and uh, as I kept walking, I, I stared at, uh, at uh, living rooms. And I love doing that. If you've ever done that, you walk on the street and you imagine life inside that living room. And I saw a pattern there also, people watching television, people eating, people watching television, people eating, people eating, people watching television, people watching television while eating, somebody sleeping on the couch. I, I, I didn't know how to digest it because these are scenes I've seen all the time. But I start to understand it like the, the search for entertainment and security has made us boxed, uh, uh, boxed environment man-made. The cars really pissed me off. I would uh, hit them like, what is this metal beast? <laughs> Surprisingly, not, I did not get arrested that day. It is California, so I think it was completely okay. <laughs> why would we build these machines of death? And why are they parked in a row and not in a nice, swervely way? <laughs> slowly I started to understand that I'm tripping really bad and I loved it but I was scared because I was lost I was surrounded in this concrete jungle which I found no passion no, no desire to be in so I decided I, I would just search the beach so I kept on walking and I made it back to the hostel obviously there was nobody there and after a while it, I realized it took me two hours to get there, which is about 10 minutes walk from where I was. So I probably did every possible road around the hostel before getting there. Uh, the hostel is close to the beach, so I was like, okay, I'm going to get back to the beach and finish this trip because this was not fun. I need some fun back. I need some snakes. Uh, I went back to the beach, and the pattern it took time, but it came back. And slowly I decided to just sit there and let it calm down. It was my first time, and I was really aware that I was full of shit. I should not have lied or tried to be cool. I was actually very happy being alone. At that moment, I realized that the earth is connected, that uh, we should always be part of nature. Uh, the water touched my feet, and I looked to gaze into the stars and understand the entire universe back then. 
And, uh, and that was it. The, the, the trip faded peacefully. I went back to the hostel and uh, nothing was the same ever since. And uh, that's it. Enjoy your ride. Enjoy the ride. By the way, for any of you out there who want to come out of the psychedelic closet and share about your first time, go online and use the hashtag psychedelicsbecause. It's a social media campaign backed by all your favorite drug organizations, and we're trying to get people to come out and share to normalize the use of psychedelics. The good, the bad, and the strange. Plus, Symposia is always looking for submissions of people's personal experiences, especially those darker, difficult times where it might have taken you a while to realize what it was you learned. Because we believe our best teachers are each other. Next, we hear a story from our friend Jennifer Doompair. And if dreams interest you, you should see her experiments and research collected at urbandreamscape.com. My first ever job was also my best ever job. I was an elf, but I was not like a, a lame shopping mall elf. This was, a, this was a cool elf gig. And it was at Casaloma in Toronto, which is one of those castles that was brought over brick by brick from Europe. And the elf gig there was you were, you were like a free-range elf. You were just supposed to be wandering around the castle and entertaining people and doing whatever. And to audition for this job, you had to come up with an elf persona and an elf shtick in your own like elf costume. Um, mine was, uh, uh, I had uh, this little like mini skirt. I'm a, I'm a teenager, I was going to hacha elf. I had this uh, mini skirt that was uh, green felt and gold taffeta, gold lime and blue taffeta, you know, leaves and this little uh, chain mail, gold chain mail shirt and uh, these elf boots that I made, which were great, or camel skin on the bottom with, you know, bells and looped up. And I would uh, teach children how to write their names in Tolkien Elvish and do cartwheels and, and juggle. One of my other elves was this Grateful Dead dude, and he had this whole uh, shtick, which maybe you have heard, about how um, the Santa and the whole Christmas thing came from the Amanita Muscaria. So he had a traditional red and white elf costume, uh, and his, his reasoning, and again, perhaps you've heard the story of the, uh, the Amanita Muscaria grows under pine trees, and the, the shaman who would take it would often dress in red and white as the mushroom was. Uh, it was given to as a gift on the winter solstice, and they used to, uh, the reindeer eat the mushrooms, and they would uh, drink the reindeer piss, and so that's, you know, flying reindeer. And so then he was like his, what his thing was like, he would like play the guitar for the kids and like sing little songs. And in, uh, in the place where they had all the snacks for the kids, he would make little signs that said magic reindeer juice, which he would leave up there. Um, our, uh, our Santa was this guy named Chennai, uh, which means grandfather in the Haida language. And Chennai spent a lot of the year living in what was then called the Queen Charlotte's, it has a different name now, with the Haida, uh, participating in their sacraments. And uh, he was in a 40s swing band. 
And during Christmas, he would go and do Santa gigs because he had long white hair and a big white beard and he was like a fat guy. You know, at the time, I remember thinking, we're really getting away with something. Jeez, if only the, if the management knew what freaks we were. In retrospect, I'm like, you know, that they, they hired us all. Clearly they, clearly they knew what freaks we were. They must have been freaks themselves. If any of you have children, you know, like when you're growing up, you think you're like getting away with stuff. And now my friend's children, and I'm like, yeah, your, your parents know. They're just tracking it to make sure you're, you know, so I'm not going too far with it. The gig went from November to the end of December. And just before Christmas, uh, Chennai said, okay, it's time for the little elves to come and sit in my lap and get their Christmas presents. So I sat on Chennai's lap, and Chennai gave me a, a chocolate and it was not quite as big as a hockey puck, you know, a little smaller. And I thought, well, that was, that's very nice of him. And I was there in the lunchroom, and I had eaten a quarter of my chocolate, and I had sitting on, sitting on the table, and Chennai came in and said, well, you're not eating that now, are you? And so uh, there had been a little communication cross. I had not realized that this was a mushroom chocolate that Chennai had given me as I was sitting there on his lap, ho, ho, ho. And uh, I, uh, I got very high. I still had half the day left to run around Casa Loma being like, you know, the, the sparkly elf. And uh, so I ended up um, spending a lot of the day outside. I mean, keep in mind, this is, this is Toronto in the, the end of December. It was very snowy and very cold. And I'm in this little mini skirt with these little you know, felt boots. But I was a wood elf, so I would, like, go and, like, hide in bushes, and there was a lot of windows, and then I would, like, run by the windows and wave at the kids and, you know, go hide in some more bushes and, you know, kind of jump out at the tourists and then go hide, occasionally come in and get warm and escape again. Uh, I think this story probably should end in some way of like this, the great, you know, revelation of gift giving or uh, frostbite or, uh, but uh, it really, it really doesn't. It really ends in um, uh, something that I'm guessing a lot of us have done, which is manage to get through a, a day of work when you're really way too high. It is a game I like playing now, though, when I'm at places and I'm, I'm watching people working, which is like, are they way too high? <laughs> so now you all know and you can play my, uh, you can play my mushroom elf game. Thank you. I never forgot about Jennifer's game. And in fact, I encourage you to look around right now. Is there any chance that someone you're looking at is way, way too high? You never do know. Hell, it could even be the person in the mirror. So, for the next story, we'll hear from a human being who, despite everything, ranks as one of my very favorites on the entire planet. He is a co-founder of Symposia, he is our chief in charge of chasing the wild geese, and he's my platonic life partner, Brett Green. He will share a story that, though I hate to admit it out loud, especially in front of him, did seem to strain the limits of materialistic rationalism. In any case, I can surely attest, for the part of the experience that I witnessed, he most certainly did resemble the prophet Jeremiah howling in the wilderness. Here's Brett. 
Sometimes you go into communion with the mushroom and you have your intentions, you have your conscious intentions, you have your unconscious intentions. And sometimes what you realize is that the mushroom has its own intentions. And the intentions of the mushroom are uh, mysterious. And uh, you can try to solve the puzzle of what the mushroom is trying to get at and the work that you've done under the mushroom for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, it's this ever-evolving problem. And by problem, I mean, uh, you know, a puzzle. A puzzle that uh, evolves as you evolve. And uh, that's why I say, and a lot of other people agree, that the uh, real work of what we're doing here with psychedelics begins after the psychedelic. Because having the psychedelic experience, it's great, but what changes society is not a lot of people on psychedelics. It's a lot of people taking what they've learned from the psychedelics and bringing it into their lives and working with it and working with it every day. And that working with it, that integration is a process. So my process has been crazy, like all of yours, I'm sure. Um, it's been beautiful. It's been terrifying. It's been uh, hard work. And it's been fantastic. Um, but my process has also not just felt like my process. It's felt like uh, really the process of uh, my people my ancestors, my tribe. Uh, so I am Jewish. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, we get from the psychedelic experience is this sense that uh, we are all one, which is true. Um, but we're also ourselves. And in, the, in a lot of traditions you see, uh, you know, the awareness that we are at once kind of the soul that's occupying our body, but we're also part of the greater soul. And the psychedelic experience brings these two souls into perspective, right? They, they kind of show you uh, really the bigger picture and the smaller picture. They, they show you the great spirit and your spirit and vice versa. And so my experience with the mushroom was one of uh, being, let's say, used by it not just for healing for myself but in my experience it was healing of a an ancestral quality and uh, I've spent a long time after the story that I'm going to tell you um, happened trying to speak with other people that kind of could give me some kind of uh, I don't know comfort or um, any kind of knowing about maybe what I went through because it was very uh, confusing. And so here's what I went through. Uh, I went to an ayahuasca ceremony. This is about uh, maybe three and a half years ago. And I went into the ayahuasca ceremony uh, with the idea of uh, being open. And that was my intention going in. And... Uh, with the intention of being open, I also had some other intentions, which was to uh, kind of get rid of some things that were hanging around me that I didn't want. 
habits of mine, predilections of mine, things that were driving me towards uh, destructive behavior and that were keeping me from being less free, from having less free will. And so what I did uh, going into the ayahuasca ceremony was to ask for me to become aware and to ask for guidance and freedom from these uh, things that I didn't need anymore, things that I didn't want. And uh, at some point in the ayahuasca ceremony, after I had drank the ayahuasca, uh, they had sealed the room from evil spirits, from anything that would impede on the room. And I knew that they would seal the room, but uh, unfortunately, while they sealed the room, I was in the bathroom purging. That's one of the things that happens when you take ayahuasca sometimes is, uh, you know, the purge gets, gets messy and... Uh, they had knocked on the bathroom door and they said, hey, we're sealing the room. You should come out. And I said, I can't. I made a mess, which was true. I had made a mess. And uh, they said, oh, we'll take care of it. We'll clean it up. But I was too ashamed by my mess. So I had to do the cleaning up. And as a result, I was sealed out of the room so that when I came back to lie down, uh, I was sealed from the group, sealed from the circle. And I sat on the couch and I was attacked by terror, by terrifying visions, and specifically, I saw the history of my people, the Jewish people, from the perspective of the Nazis, from the perspective of Hitler. I saw myself as a Jew as the lowest form of creation. I saw what I knew so many people around the world saw when they thought about Jews and thought about me. I saw myself as a disgusting, despicable parasite and something that needed to be healed. But I didn't quite know how to heal. So I had to keep drinking. And I had eight cups of ayahuasca that night to keep drinking and drinking and drinking to find out how I could save myself. And finally, in the last cup, it was water. And I blessed the water, and I asked the water be the light of Christ. And by the light of Christ, I don't mean, you know, the symbol of Jesus. I don't mean Jesus the person. I don't mean anything necessarily physical. What I mean is the light, pure white light of, of healing. And it was that moment that I chose a light path, that I knew that I would be able to recognize both the unity of all that is, but that I would choose the path of light. And uh, the path of light is uh, easier to choose than it is to follow. And so, you know, as, as all of us know fair well, you experience these great things, you experience these profundities, you experience light, and then you, you can spend your whole life chasing it. And we do spend our whole lives chasing it. And one of the ways that we keep it in is to keep asking for it, to keep looking for it keep bringing it to us and that's the work of this medicine that we need to continue to do but for me that experience was enough for a while for psychedelics and I got out of that experience not sure how to interpret it not sure how to interpret the fact that I had uh, essentially seen uh, you know the 
the uh, history of my people from the perspective of the Nazis as if it was uh, made by James Cameron or uh, Cecil B. DeMille or any of the great filmmakers, you know, that had the greatest production values, the unlimited budget of the imagination. It was uh, as vivid as it gets, and it was believable, and I left that not knowing what to make of it, not knowing how to integrate it. And so it was about a year and a half later, it was on my birthday, it was uh, my 30th birthday, and uh, myself and Lex... Helger and uh, my friend Cynthia went to a state park called Borderlands State Park, which I think is significant, Borderlands, right? Uh, it's the, the border between maybe one world and the next. And I ate uh, seven grams of mushrooms. And uh, I really didn't have an intention set. But what happened to me that day um, is still something I'm working with, but uh, it was different than all the other experiences. It was different than ayahuasca. It was different than any other trip I'd had. And the reason it was different is because on that day, uh, my experience was that I was possessed by some kind of medicine man. And I experienced all of the pain and the suffering of everybody that died in the camps in the Holocaust. I experienced all of the hate, all of the rage at how this could happen, at all of the suffering of my people and how that suffering isn't just belonging to one person or one tribe or one group, but it belongs to all of us. It's all of us to own and we need to go through it. It's like it's in the atmosphere and we... We need to take it in and we need to transform it in an alchemical type of process where we take it in. And so I took it in and I sobbed for three hours and I cried for three hours. And then I emerged singing this language that I had never heard before, knowing these songs, being given this understanding that certain plants could be communicated with in certain ways. And it concluded with me singing a song, holding a staff and walking in a circle, demanding that it rained. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. And I remember Lex uh, was very angry. He said, oh, it's such a nice day out. You don't make it rain. And I said, no, it has to rain. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't, figure out necessarily why it had to rain but I was singing this Akaro and chanting and holding my stick like Jeremiah in the wilderness was uh, how Lex described it and I was shouting at the sky because it wasn't raining immediately and uh, Lex was filming me at the time and I turned to the camera and I said, I'm going to prove that reality is malleable. I'm going to summon a storm. Anyway, after 10 minutes of walking in this circle and shouting at the sky, I got quite frustrated that uh, nature didn't comply and that there wasn't a storm. But beyond that, it was getting late. and So we started walking off uh, 
out of the park. And anyway, about five minutes later, these two guys on a golf cart, they couldn't have been more than like 18. They probably had this summer job, you know, minding the, the park. They pulled up to us and they said, you guys have to leave. My first thought was, oh, they must have heard uh, all this lunacy happening, all the screaming and singing and chanting, and they must have figured uh, two guys probably, uh, a few guys lost their minds, and we need to kick them out of here so that the uh, the families around here could uh, appreciate the, the park for what it's meant to be appreciated for. And uh, just to kind of humor myself I said well why do we have to leave and they said well there's a severe weather storm warning for this entire area that just came out of nowhere so about uh, two minutes later we walked to this clearing and we look past uh, the expanse it's this enormous field next to this uh, nice mansion and the sky is as dark as I had ever seen it before. And <laughs> it rained like crazy. And uh, I knew that if I went out into that field and lay down, I would be struck by lightning. Uh, so I didn't. Which, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about. Now, I've told that story to some people and they think that, oh, clearly, you know, I think that I can control the weather with these things and that makes me crazy because that's impossible. And I've talked to other people that, you know, try to interpret it from kind of an analytical psychology perspective, right? That it's this story with these obvious synchronicities and there's all this mythical material in there that, sheds light on my consciousness. And, and I've talked to other people who are in the shamanic world and they say, oh yeah, you just, you know, you were using elementals and magic. And the elementals, they don't really have a conscience. So, you know, you summon them and maybe, you know, oh, I know this guy and he summoned uh, lightning and it burned down somebody's house. So these things aren't, you know, really nice to mess with. And, and uh, you know, all these people are right. And all these people are not right. And uh, what do I think happened? Um, I think that reality is really the convergence of what we think it is and what happens to us. And that's the lesson, I think, with using these things is that really we don't know what lurks in our unconscious. We barely know what we're conscious of. And we also don't know how we connect to the whole and how the whole works its way through us, this, the individual self. But that there is an interplay, that there is something that we are tapping into, maybe we become like a beacon for all the information that exists in the entire cosmos. That somehow, while I am Brett Green, I'm also part of 
the space-time continuum and that it's that space-time fabric that we're all a part of that makes us one. That we are always both who we are as individuals and the bigger picture at once. So when we're doing this work, keep in mind that we're doing it for everyone as well as ourselves. And the reason why that's important is because until everyone is free, then no one is free. Until everyone finds peace, there is no peace to be had. Thank you. Our last story comes from Paul Cuisino, who spent much time readying himself for his life-changing trip, and then even more time to integrate it into his life. It's an insightful story about finding your model and finding your map. My story starts with a terrible event, and that was a broken wedding. I had been in a relationship for eight years. I was building my dream life, and I had gone to university, had gotten an accounting designation, worked for international firms, and then I thought, well, logical steps, you get the house, somehow you get married, that's part of the plan, and then we were already talking about having kids. And I didn't know anything else, and I thought that was going to make me happy. And suddenly, that relationship fell apart a few months before the wedding, and then that threw me into a financial disaster. I had just bought a house. I was single income. And when you're in those types of businesses, at first, they don't actually pay you that well. They just promise you that you're going to make a lot of money. So I started struggling internally, and I also didn't have any beliefs. Like, I thought we were just atoms, matter, flash, you die, that's... That's pretty much it. So I was searching for myself. I was miserable. That had been my only relationship with a woman. And then my brother kept telling me, Paul, you got to listen. You got to listen. I'm like, listen to what? He's like, there's this guy, Joe Rogan. And I'm like, Joe Rogan? Who is that guy? And he's like, oh, yeah, like he does stuff with the UFC. He's a comedian. I'm like, okay, like Jeff. Like, I don't want anything to do with that guy, especially because I was an accountant, you know, I had like that tie, that nice suit, I was going at the tailor, having all that custom made, I'm like, that's just the nuts, like, I don't want to listen to him. So he pestered me for a year for me to listen to Joe Rogan. And then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to listen to that guy. So as I was listening to the podcast, eventually he said, the mushroom changes everything. He's like, everyone should take mushrooms. I'm like, what is he talking about? And as he was going into the experience that himself had had with the mushroom and his guests, I was thinking back of high school, and I had used it once for recreational purposes, and somehow that had made my girlfriend quit smoking. I'm like, yeah, what was up with that? You know, Maybe that guy, Joe Rogan, has something that is of value. So I kind of like put that aside, but it was digging at my brain. And then I ended up in this uh, used bookstore, and I found the psychedelic guide to the Book of the Dead, as well as a copy of the Book of the Dead from Tibet. And I was getting curious about philosophy, but I was like, how can these two things get together? And then somehow I was uh, sent a podcast uh, to the psychedelic salon with Lorenzo. And I was like, 
why would I listen to that podcast? And then it was again that podcasting thing coming into my life. And that friend talked to me for about a month and says, you got to listen to Lorenzo. So I listened to Lorenzo. And then he had a guest talk about Timothy Leary. I'm like, wow, that's a fascinating guy. And he had gone to Harvard. And because of that, for me, he had a bit more credibility. So what I ended up doing is go back to that store. I bought those books. And then I started reading it. And I was fascinated. And I was not only fascinated because, one, they were kind of like going hand in hand, although I didn't understand the Book of the Dead. It was talking about all these different wrathful deities. And for me, I was focusing on the second bardo, which for them is the realm of karmic visions. And that's tied to all of the stuff that you fear, everything that you're pulled into. And I thought, that can't exist. There's no way that those realms can exist. And I had such a critical mind that I went on a mission to disprove that all that was crap. You know, I'm like, these guys are all crazy. And now I know why Timothy Leary ended up going to jail. So I, uh, but I took it seriously because the only way that I would know being the accountant is if I could have reasonable assurance that my test was good. So then I, uh, I read the whole thing twice and I prepared myself for my first serious mushroom experience. And I told my brother, you got to leave the house and I'm going to be doing this in pitch black. I was following some of Terrence's advice. So I uh, already became lunatic, I think. I had taped all the windows underneath my uh, door. I put a blanket, make sure there's like not a single piece of light that was going in there. And I was reciting these mantras to guide me through the three different bardos. And really it was dissolve the ego. So you can see how that can be good to start your journey with. And, uh, and then the other one was embrace the experiences and the visions. Because I really wanted them to come and I was kind of afraid if it actually happened to be terrified like it was talking about in those books. And then the other one was do nothing. And this one has been my mantra that I kept. Out of all of them, I really like the do nothing approach. I find whenever the boat gets rocked, just don't do anything, and it ends up becoming fine eventually. So I'm reciting those mantras, and I'm saying them for about two hours, or what seemed like two hours. I'm like, see, told you, nothing happened. Like, like I can leave my room now, everything's fine, you know, and I'm just about to get out of my bed, and then... Did something happen? And then I'm like, no, but why am I wondering? And then lightning bolt. And then that totally flashed in my whole body. This huge lightning, this ray of pure light. But it was so short. And I'm like, nope. I don't think anything happened. And then again, lightning bolt. And I'm like, whoa, okay, wait, no. Something definitely is happening here. I'm freaking out. Why did I do this? This is crazy. <laughs> So then I attempt to get out of my bed. I'm like, ah, oh, I can't move my body. No, what's going on? So as I'm getting stuck with that, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You wanted to do this. This is the clear light. It's what they were talking about in the first part. Oh, this thing actually exists. So now I'm getting excited. And it says, no, don't react. Don't react. Don't get excited. So then I'm like, okay, take a deep breath. And then as I was easing into it, I had that flash of light for what seemed to be maybe three seconds. It felt like the three longest seconds of my life. Completely dissolved. But what followed after that is what I was not prepared for. Rivers of blood, 
bones everywhere. And then I'm like trying to open my eyes. I'm bleeding from my face. And I'm like, what is going on? And then I kept seeing all these women everywhere. And for me, I realized today that that had to do with that eight-year-long relationship, that deep wound. And in the second bardo, when you talk about the karmic visions, it has a lot to do with what you're being pulled towards or what you're afraid or you don't want. And that was obviously a topic in my life. That was part of why I was there at that time. But then it was like vampire-like woman. And these started like ripping at my flesh and stuff. And I'm like, man, this is painful. Like I, like, I thought it was just an illusion. It was a vision or something. But it actually hurt. So as I was going through that dismemberment process, I'm just like, okay, embrace the vision. Embrace the vision. Embrace the vision. And it actually was able to, like, I was able to relax into it and allowed him to slowly tear me to pieces. Then the next phase is the reintegration phase, which was tied to the third bardo. And here they say that you get to actually choose a different path for yourself as you become reincarnated of some sort. Now, because I had been torn to pieces, I started believing it by then. And I tried to like move my body in the room and I was like flashing in between that realm of like these gods and these demons. There was no peaceful deities in my vision. So in the book they talked about them, they never showed up for mine. <laughs> So as I'm going between those two, I'm able to move my body and I'm like, oh, I really got to go to the washroom. Why didn't I think of this? I'm like, like, I had no way to actually go to the washroom. I didn't know where the door was. It was pitch black. I'm like, do I just do it in my bed? Or like, so as I'm figuring all that out, then I'm like, oh, wait, maybe they're like, it, I can just see. And then it started having light in my room. And then I'm like, well, the washroom is just there. So I kind of like opened up a portal of some sort through the wood went to the washroom and then I realized that I was able to like move the wood and I was like what is this is this actually happening but then I remembered what I had been reading in the text and it says that when you're doing that reintegration you can have manifestation of powers whether they're real or they're not but Timothy Leary and uh, Ram Das and Ralph Metzer in the psychedelic experience were talking about well don't use those powers it's not going to help you with your reincarnation so then I decided to go back in my bed, start breathing, and that's when I was able to see a universe being created. Now, I don't know if that was how I was perceiving the creation of the universe or not, but I was seeing star systems being created. And then I saw planet Earth be created, and I saw my body. And that's when I started envisioning a new life for myself. And I was actually able to see myself in nature, I had a new partner, I wasn't working in that accounting job, and all those different things happened. And then it's kind of like I fudged in my body and everything stopped. I was like, I'm, I'm sober now? And there was like no transition point between that last piece of creation and being sober. So I didn't fully understand how that happened, but then I thought, well, maybe like when you're being born, that's kind of what happens, right? You're going through that struggle, the bird canal and all that. But then eventually when you take that first piece of like that first bread of air, then that's your reality now. So I guess you're sober of some sort. But my whole life was changed as a result of that experience because I wasn't able to continue on the path that I had been doing. Now I had to go back and work for these accounting firms. And uh, by then I had actually worked for an international satellite company and a few months later, there was a documentary on Vice about one of the shareholders. 
And he was a despicable human being. Like, the worst atrocities I had ever heard of, they had on film, and it was like a special vice documentary. So I'm going back in the office, and then I'm thinking, well, this is kind of like that ratful deity experience thing that had showed up. And it was, it was for real. So my boss actually called me in her office, and she says, Paul, like, what's going on? And, and I'm, I'm shaking, <laughs> You know, I'm like, uh, uh. and then she's like, what's going on? And I said, well, like, I just saw a documentary about the shareholder, and I was talking about it, and she said, oh, don't worry about that. You're just the accountant. <laughs> oh, what do you mean I'm just the accountant? Like, why do you want me to stay if I'm not actually doing anything? And then it just got into the weirdest conversation ever. So then I started developing agoraphobia. And things got really intense. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't even touch my skin. I had all these issues coming up. And I started hearing about the ayahuasca experience through the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And I got this book from a journalist, Peter Gorman, and he was talking about how he went in the Amazon. And he went about in the same years that Terrence McKenna had gone in the Amazon. And I thought, well, maybe this is the place that I need to learn about what just happened to me with that book of the dead, like that self-experimentation. But it was still holding on to my old truths, kind of like when you're navigating those bardos. So I was clinging on to what I thought was my path to happiness, and I decided to apply to law school for McGill instead. And then when I got my acceptance letter, I literally started puking. Like, I was puking my guts out. I'm like, well, this is supposed to be a great moment. So that same night, I called Peter, and I said, I want to go to the Amazon. Just this random guy. And then he says, okay, I'm organizing a trip. So I gave him money. I bought a trip to Peru, a plane ticket. And then I ended up traveling down the Amazon, quit my job, left everything behind, spent like four months there. And then that completely changed my life. And when I came back, obviously I had to earn some kind of income. And for me, I started working for a not-for-profit. But then I started doing these trainings on the side to start working more with these altered states and integration. And I think that integration was something that was important because I had done so much work in the Amazon that for the first six months, I actually was not functional in society. Like, I, I just couldn't relate. And once I found mentors, and for me it was through the bread work, through the native wisdom traditions of here, then that allowed me to shape and create what I wanted to do with my life. And now what I've done as a result of that psychedelic experience is I help people that are entrepreneurs that have these awesome ideas. So I'm using that finance background that I used to hate because once I was going through that transformation, I couldn't stand it did something good by associating with people that are making a positive dif difference. And I also bring them in the Amazon to work with the shaman that changed my life so that I can help them get all those ideas out there. So that's like a model of bringing the psychedelic experience to make meaningful changes in our society. And what I want to take away from this story, one is that you never know what can happen when you take the mushroom, okay? Like for me, they said like you were going to be like, like a partner, a shareholder, all that. I was going for the money. This isn't exactly, like, I mean, this wasn't part of it, okay? This was not part of the gig. But the second one is I invite people to consider using different maps to navigate the experience. Because I don't know if that was a bias that I created because of the, uh, the Book of the Dead, but it certainly had a strong influence from my experience, and it gave me a way 
to understand what was happening when it was happening. Because if I hadn't read that and then I started having these vampire-like women tearing my flesh away, I think I might have called someone and say, I need medical help, you know? And that, for one, was a big piece in being able to go through that experience. Now, I'm not saying the Book of the Dead is what you need to use. There's a lot of uh, models now with transpersonal psychology. There's also the Book of Tao you might work with. Some people even, I know, work with the Bible. Or you can work with a more academic or a more spiritual model. And I don't really care because I don't know what the answer is. And my life changed so much between like just 24 hours of time and then now it's, keep, it's been keeping changing that I don't exactly know what is the truth. But I think that if we're seeking, we're going to find an answer that is able to make us happy and to be in good health. And the proof of that is that I'm here tonight while back then, like two hours ago when it wasn't actually opened, I would have freaked out just walking on the streets in Montreal. Like I was here in like 2011 and a guy literally just talked to me on the side of the street and I jumped because I was so scared. And this whole journey was like a five-year transformation. But I do believe that the mushrooms, when they're used with intention and that you have a model to work with, can change your life. And I think that everyone here can benefit from it, either directly or indirectly, if they're open to the idea. Thanks. That's it for our stories this week. Thanks to Lorenzo for allowing us to contribute. And remember, if you'd like to see Symposia stories in your town, just let us know and we'll do our best to make it happen. Seeking stories will travel. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. To say thank you, we have perks like hemp t-shirts, blotter art, tickets to our events, Palo Santo, and one of the new chapters from Anandamide, or The Cannabinoid my graphic novel series about cannabis based on Moby Dick. All new donations will go to buying me a new microphone for this podcast. Find us at patreon.com slash symposia. A special thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, Joey Whip and California Smile, who made the music, and to Brian Norman, who produced the show.